ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Thursday the 7th of December. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. In a late-night sitting, Federal Parliament has passed laws to detain high-risk offenders who've been recently released from immigration detention. The government shut down debate on the laws, a move that left the shadow Immigration Minister Dan Tehan unimpressed. Oh, gutless, gutless. You don't even want to debate it. You don't even want to debate it. The member for Wannan will... The question is, the question be put... To tell us a little bit more, political reporter Tom Lowry is at Parliament House in Canberra. Tom, there's been quite a political battle over these laws. How did it end? Sabra, it was all very quick and a bit unusual too. Of course, Federal Parliament wasn't even supposed to be sitting yesterday and it sat until late last night. We had a day of condolences for Labor MP Peter Murphy, who died earlier in the week, uh, before Parliament returned quite late in the evening to rush through these laws. There was just a brief speech from Andrew Giles, a vote, and it was all done. Now, these laws will allow courts to re-detain some immigration detainees, those the government and courts consider the most dangerous. All of them have to have a prior conviction for an offence punishable by seven years or more. That's just the starting point to be considered under these laws. The government makes an application to the courts and a court decides if they are considered very likely to re-offend. At that point, they can be re-detained for a period up to three years. Andrew Giles says his department is already working on applications to get some of these people back before the courts. The intent of this scheme is to capture those individuals who pose an unacceptable risk of harming the community through committing a serious violent or sexual offence. The preventative detention regime would allow for the court to detain the worst of the worst offenders. To be clear, it would not capture all of the detainees released since the High Court decision. Tom, the opposition was trying up until the last minute to amend this legislation. Is it satisfied with what's been delivered? Yeah, of course. The opposition has been furious about this whole situation for weeks, very critical of the government's handling of it, supportive of these laws and this idea, a preventative detention regime, but keen to attack the government at every turn. Late last night, it was trying to amend this legislation to force the minister to inform the House of every single release from immigration detention going forward under this post-NZYQ High Court regime. Of course, the government was never going to support that and shot it down last night without even a hint of a debate. Here's the Shadow Immigration Minister, Dan Tien, responding to that. What a shambles. What chaos. Order. What a Order. shambles. The what chaos. Shadow Minister you needs don't to even want to debate the number one priority the of any government to Order. keep the Order. community Order. safe. Shadow Minister, You're hiding. You're hiding. Order. Sabra, the laws are, of course, in place now. Today is the final parliamentary sitting day of the year. The government will hope it can end the year talking about something other than this. Tom Lowry there. Nearly three decades after it was recommended following the Port Arthur massacre, a national firearms register will finally be set up with state and federal leaders agreeing to one. The idea was revived after two police officers and a neighbour was shot dead by three religiously motivated terrorists in rural Queensland last December. As the anniversary of that mass shooting approaches, an American man has been arrested in Arizona. Elizabeth Cramsey reports. 
It's one of the biggest improvements in firearms management since the Howard government's gun controls. The Prime Minister announcing eight state and territory gun registers will all come under the umbrella of a single database. It'll allow police officers to see in real time who owns a firearm, what type it is and where it's registered. A reform welcomed by the President of the Queensland Police Union, Ian Levers. He's actually set a timeline and said, I'm going to provide the funds and I want this done and you've got four years to get it done. So to every jurisdiction in Australia, get your act together, start working together as one so we can improve safety and security and community safety across the country. The renewed push to deliver a national register came after three people murdered two Queensland police officers and a neighbour at Weambilla on the Western Downs last December. It's since been revealed one of the killers had guns registered in two states. What it will do is give all police across the country all the information that they require to uh, conduct their risk assessments when responding to a call for service. And if they can have that information, that can make it safer for them as well as the community. And it's been widely welcomed. Stephen Bendel is the convener at the Australian Gun Safety Alliance. It has been frustrating that it has taken so long, but despite all of that uh, difficulty, um, we're really pleased that at least going forward, all of firearm data, including firearm information, who owns the firearm, where it is, all that's going to be in one place available for law enforcement in particular, but to keep the community safe. Rachel Oxborough is from the Sporting Shooters Association of Australia. We support the need for evidence-based regulation of firearm ownership, um, particularly when it comes to public safety. And in this case, if this can give the ability for law enforcement to carry out their duties and be safer when doing so, we're completely behind the move. But she says the organisation has one concern. Whether this would just be the first building block in changing firearm laws and tightening laws that directly relate to firearm ownership. However, Stephen Bendel says gun owners who follow the law won't have anything to worry about. This will have no impact on the ability of someone who legally owns a firearm to, to go about um, what they do. Investigations into the Weambilla shooting are continuing. Elizabeth Cramsey reporting. And in the United States, authorities have unsealed details of the charges laid against the Arizona man who's been connected with the Weambilla killings. North America correspondent Barbara Miller joined me earlier. Bob, what have you been able to discover about this US case? Well, what we hear is that the defendant, Arizona man Donald Day Jr., is facing two counts. Now, these relate to posts he made on two online platforms. One of them is YouTube. The other is a social media platform called BitChute. And we learned that through his online activity, he was in touch with two of the three people, Stacey and Gareth Train, who were involved in that uh, deadly attack in the Queensland community of William Billa, and that they regularly commented on one another's posts. We also learned that from about the beginning of 2022, Donald Day, and I'm reading from the court documents now, engaged in a course of conduct demonstrating a desire to incite violence and threaten a variety of groups and individuals, including law enforcement and government authorities. But what's interesting about these documents is that the two counts that he's actually facing relate to posts he made 
following the William Biller deaths. The first is a count where he's alleged to have threatened to injure law enforcement officials, and that's in relation to a post he made on December the 16th last year, so several days after the deadly ambush. It was a post in relation to that attack, but it was made after the attack. Now, the second count uh, is in relation to a post that Donald Day made in February of this year, and there he's alleged to have threatened to kill or threatened violence against the head of the World Health Organization. So a completely separate count there. We also learn that Donald Day Jr., who's 58, describes himself in his online posts as an ex-con who is armed to the teeth. What happens now? Well, he appeared in an Arizona court yesterday. That was after his arrest at the end of last week in a a remote location in Arizona. He pleaded not guilty to those charges. Uh, And at the moment, a jury trial has been set down for the middle of next year, for June of next year. But we've been speaking to a couple of experts today who say it's possible that further charges could follow. And uh, of course, we'll be watching with interest whether if they do, if they are more directly connected to any comments he made ahead of that December 12th attack in Queensland. Barbara Miller there. The Prime Minister struck a deal with the states and territories to provide tens of billions of dollars in extra funding for healthcare and GST top-ups. In exchange, they've agreed to change the National Disability Insurance Scheme to help curb the huge jump in costs and demand. To discuss the health part of the deal, the Federal Health Minister, Mark Butler, joined me earlier. Mark Butler, thanks for joining AM. Hi, Sabra. This new health agreement kicks off in 2025. The Commonwealth will give the states and territories an extra $15 billion over five years in exchange for long-term reforms. What reforms are they? Well, there's a big reform agenda that will be released as we release the midterm review of the hospital funding agreement over the course of the next day or two. Uh, We've been working on that for some days, but essentially it's about making sure that people are getting the right care at the right place at the right time, and that won't always be in the hospital system. But I think the important thing, Sabra, uh, that you saw yesterday was governments working together for Australia in health, in areas like disabilities. You haven't always seen that. Too often we've seen governments stuck in trench warfare, playing the blame game on these critical services. And that wasn't the approach we saw yesterday. So in addition to um, additional investment, the Prime Minister announced in our strengthening Medicare agenda that will expand urgent care clinics that we're standing up right now, you will see that additional support from the Commonwealth to state governments in their efforts to combat ramping and clear some of the elective surgery wait lists that really built up over COVID. But at the same time, you'll see state governments supporting the Commonwealth in our efforts to make the NDIS sustainable and for us to work together to develop a shared system of supports for people who are outside of the NDIS. So it's a very significant compact agreed by all governments that will deliver much better services for Australians. Okay, let's talk about this review that was commissioned earlier this year. There was an interim report and a report delivered up yesterday. Give us a flavour of, of that. What can people expect? Will they see a major change to the health system within 12 months, within two years? We'll take urgent care clinics, for example, Sabra. We've stood them up over the course of 
2023. By the end of this year, we'll have 58 urgent care clinics operating across the country. That doesn't give national coverage, which is why yesterday the Prime Minister said we want to invest more in this model. But already it means that people who otherwise would have to go to an emergency department are able to get good quality care for non-life-threatening emergencies. And we've already seen hospital data at some hospitals that, that sees emergency department presentations dropping dramatically because when your kid falls off the skateboard and breaks their arm, you now have an option other than going to an emergency department. It's quicker, it's more effective, it's fully free because it's bulk build and it's taking pressure off a very strained hospital system. Well, just give us an idea there. You said uh, accident emergency figures have dropped off dramatically. Tell us how much. Well, take the Logan Hospital, which um, has seen an urgent care clinic open over the last few months. Their, their presentations for the non-urgent categories of, of presentation, which accounts for about 4 million out of the 8 million presentations EDs see every year, they've dropped by more than 10%. In Ipswich, they've dropped by as much as 20% since the uh, urgent care clinic operated in that catchment area. We've made sure that these urgent care clinics are situated around hospital areas where there are particularly um, difficult presentation numbers on EDs. So hospitals are really struggling with the number of people coming through their door. And what we so, see already is one third of these presentations are for kids under 15, the sort of kid falling off the skateboard when the family doesn't know what to do in the evening or on the weekend. The only course at the moment is up, that's open to them has been to go to the emergency department. So you talked about that 58 was the promise by the end of this year. You're on target to meet that and the extra $1.2 billion for these centres. Does that mean... How many more centres does that mean or does that mean you're just going to bolster the clinics that are in operation? No, as the Prime Minister said yesterday, there will be more clinics, but that money will also go into some really important work that we've already started with state governments. New South Wales is taking the lead, particularly on this, to try and make sure that older Australians don't end up in hospital as often as they currently do. Um, so that's much better support for older Australians, including those living in aged care facilities delivered outside of a hospital setting, so preventing them having to go to hospital if that's possible. But also when they are in hospital, what we're finding is uh, state governments are saying they're stuck in the hospital system, sometimes for months and months, because there's nowhere for them to be taken. They're clinically able to be discharged from hospital, but there's not a setting outside of hospital that is appropriate to their level of need. So I think what we'll be doing is building that capability for people, older Australians particularly, who are currently stuck in hospital with quite complex levels of need that might not be able to be dealt with in a standard aged care setting. That will be a very significant piece of reform because I know this is a very serious issue for state hospital systems. There will be a lot of anxious people around today thinking they're going to be tossed off the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Will anyone who's on the scheme right now find themselves excluded or will the exclusions apply to new applicants? Well, Bill Shorten, as you know, Sabra is standing up at the press club today. The NDIS review that Bruce Bonahadi and Lisa Paul have been conducting over months, talking to thousands of people living with disabilities and their families, carers and disability providers, that will be released and, and it will be very clear the sorts of issues that those two very significant Australians have identified in the NDIS. I think every Australian, whether they're a general taxpayer 
whether they care for someone with a disability or live with a disability, want to make sure that this really crucial reform that's still only 10 or 12 years old is sustainable for the long term. And right now its growth rates are not sustainable. Also what we agreed with states yesterday is to build a shared system of supports for people who fall outside of the NDIS. Remember the NDIS was only ever designed for people with very significant permanent disabilities. There are vast numbers of Australians out there, kids with developmental delays, adults with significant mental health issues who currently sit outside the NDIS because it wasn't really built for that level of need, but aren't getting the support they need. And there was a commitment yesterday to build those supports together. Okay, Mark Butler, thanks for joining AM. Thanks, Sabra. Mark Butler is the Federal Health Minister. The former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson's apologised for the pain, loss and suffering of COVID victims and acknowledged his government vastly underestimated the scale of the crisis in its initial stages. Mr Johnson's been giving evidence for the first time to the UK's COVID inquiry and many of the questions have been about whether he was too slow to act. Europe correspondent Steve Kinane reports from London. Boris Johnson began his much-awaited evidence to this inquiry with an apology. But as he uttered those initial words, members of bereaved families in the public gallery rose to their feet, holding signs that read, The dead can't hear your apology. Can I just say how glad I am to be at this uh, inquiry and uh, how sorry I am for the, the pain and the loss and the suffering sit down. of please, the please stop. COVID stop. victims. Please sit down. Please sit down or I'm afraid you'll have to leave the hearing room. Boris Johnson was asked why around 5,000 of his WhatsApp messages from the first six months of 2020 had gone missing. He told the inquiry he wasn't sure of the exact reason, but they had somehow been automatically erased. When asked why he didn't chair any of the five emergency COBRA meetings in the early stages of the spread of COVID, he said it was not something that had broken on his consciousness as a potential national disaster. Mr Johnson did admit that mistakes had been made and that his government had underestimated the pace and the scale of the challenge. If we had collectively stopped to think about the uh, mathematical implications of some of the forecasts that were being made and we, we believed them, um, we might have operated differently. Boris Johnson admitted he should have stopped mass gatherings like sporting events earlier and that he was bewildered by the data he was getting. He said his government was doing its level best at the time and that their judgment was clouded by experiences of more minor outbreaks such as swine flu and SARS. I, I look at all this stuff in which we seem so oblivious with, with, with horror now. I mean, we, we, we should, have, we should have, have twigged. We should collectively have twigged uh, much sooner. I should have twigged. Outside the inquiry, Amar Anwar, a lawyer representing the bereaved families, said many of them would not accept Mr Johnson's apology. He claimed the former Prime Minister had presided over what he described as the meltdown of the British state. Johnson's government turned our care homes into killing grounds for the elderly who were treated as toxic waste. He wasted £37 billion on a failed track and trace system and all the while Johnson and his cabinet were living it up at parties, insulting the dead, the poor and the vulnerable. Boris Johnson will give evidence to the inquiry for a second day tomorrow. 
This is Steve Kinane in London, reporting for AM. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. The world's attention may have shifted to the war in the Middle East, but in Ukraine, the battle drags on as a second winter sets in with no end in sight. Today, Dr Samir Puri, a visiting lecturer at King's College London, on who's winning the war and how long Ukraine can rely on Western support. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.